This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome to New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado, and I'll be your host for this episode. And today, I'm excited because I'm talking to Dr. April Sizemore Barber about prismatic performances, queer South Africa, and the fragmentation of the Rainbow Nation, which was published by the University of Michigan Press in 2020. Prismatic Performances focuses on the queer embodiments that both reveal and animate the gaps between South Africa's self-image and its lived realities. It argues that performance has become a key location where contradictions inherent to South Africa's post-apartheid identity are negotiated. It also shows that, as the sheen of the new South Africa began to fade, these performances revealed the inadequacy and, indeed, the violence of the Rainbow Nation as an aspirational metaphor. Yet they also created space for imagining new, radical configurations of belonging. I forgot to mention this on some of my previous interviews, but this book is part of the amazing Triangulations Lesbian, Gay, Queer, theater drama performance series by the University of Michigan Press. And I have interviewed the authors and editors of some of the other books in the series. And you can check those out in the NBN catalog if you'd like. I'm interviews included books such as Queer Nightlife, The Bodies of Others, Drag Dances and Their Afterlives, and Translocas, The Politics of Puerto Rican Drag and Trans Performance. Dr. April Sizemore Barber is Associate Professor of the Practice in Women's and Gender Studies at Georgetown University. April, welcome to New Books and Gender and Sexuality Studies. Well, thank you so much for for inviting me. I'm really excited at the opportunity to discuss the book and, and, you know, be in conversation with you. But before we begin, I have a a content warning. Uh, At some point in this interview, we will discuss sexual violence and rape. But let's get to it. Uh, let's start, April, but uh, can you tell us your book's origin story? Sure. Um, so I've always been really interested in, well, was a theater person many, many years ago, uh, and always very interested in how theater and performance allow um, and participate in, in larger social movements. So I was very interested in the anti-apartheid movement and uh, South Africa's transition um, from from the apartheid era to its new constitutional democracy, and particularly the role that protest theater played and also theater around the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So this is my undergrad, taking us back a while. Um, But I was really, I found myself fascinated particularly with this paradox where South Africa has Unlike the U.S., where we tend to, and other places in the world where you tend to, law kind of follows popular opinion, um, uh, South Africa has a, um, a constitution that uh, has included LGBT rights as, as part of its um, Bill of Rights in its con- uh, 1996 constitution. And so LGBT uh, identity is 
part of the literal constitution of the nation, uh, both literal and, and kind of metaphorical. And, uh, and so um, marriage equality, which is, of course, one of those, those barometers, has been legal since 2005. Uh, and very much um, this, this narrative of this multicultural, diverse, uh, post-apartheid rainbow nation, which came from Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela, has been been based around, or queerness has been built into it, um, and there's a huge queer tourism industry. But uh, it's also very, very clear that uh, this the law can only be accessed uh, by by those who have economic and cultural kind of uh, the wherewithal, and a lot of people are still, I mean, it's, it's the most unequal society in the world, and um, I was noticing that there was a certain amount of pinkwashing going on, where this rainbow was, was bolstered by this idea that, you know, yay, queer rights, uh, but actually the rainbow did not refract equally for everybody, and so I was really interested in how performance, and I define performance very broadly as um, the interaction between bodies and audiences in particular spaces. Uh, I was really interested in how um, queer bodies in public space kind of required a re response, and often uh, that response would would be very uh, would be violent, would be you know excited, would be any number of things. But it, it very much um, there are moments where publics interact with queerness on this kind of South African broad stage, where we can see the failures. Of, of the post-apartheid state, but also how queer people themselves creatively engage um, in their communities through embodiment and critique and create new ways of being, new ways of imagining um, a, a post-apartheid South Africa that is not that is not dictated by a, a kind of pretty metaphor, but actually thinks about what justice uh, would actually look like. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about the time frame uh, that you cover here, 1994 to 2013. I think that's uh, that corresponds to Nelson Mandela's election and death. Why are those dates relevant to uh, the queer South Africans and to the performances you're analyzing here? Sure. Uh, well, that I kind of consider this time period to be uh, what you might call the rainbow era. So it's um, it's. From Nelson Mandela's election, which was largely thought to never, it was never, it was a, uh, called the kind of the miracle, right? And it's part of the, the state building uh, around all these narratives. So uh, I basically look at the, the, the rise and what we might call the rise and fall of this rainbow enthusiasm and how queer people were uh were part of the the, uh, the nation building within the constitution, and also um, often are blamed when this transition or the uh, transformation didn't actually occur as people had hoped. Uh, LGBT people are are scapegoated, um, and yeah, and Nelson Mandela is such a, an iconic figure, and he was as my, one of my first chapters. I, I look at his relationship to a drag performer, Peter Dirk Ace, and he's very, very savvy and was very, um, very much kind of holding things together, even as uh, his successors were not, uh, Thabo Mbeki and Jacob Zuma were, were uh, you know, kind of, in many people's opinions, selling the, the democracy down the river by investing in neoliberal politics and the IMF. Um, and a denialism around HIV, but Nelson Mandela would be trotted out at various times for elections, and kind of was this was this embodiment of this this possibility. And his he very much played into that in, in order to you know he went on a world tour uh, around his election, and he was very much tied to this period. Um, and it also just seemed to be I mean it was when I was doing my the majority of my field work too, so um, I, I caught. Uh, kind of the down the Zuma era where um, a lot of particularly around sexual assault and around gender issues there there was a lot of disillusionment in these um, activism sectors uh, there was a lot of kind of an emergent patriarchy that was that kind of actively worked against some of the um, the promises of the constitution and and so it was it was very much um, it felt like the end of an era. And also, even my, uh, I, I talk about a soap opera that that starts 
1994 generations. And it also ended right, right after Nelson Mandela's death. And it's kind of, it echoes, and I talk about how that happens, but it echoes the, the trajectory of, of the nation in a way as well. And I'll, uh, at the, I think at the end, I'll talk a little bit about my, my next project that I'm thinking about these issues in terms of where, we, where we're going and what has happened since Nelson Mandela's death. But it seems like a very, very clear cut period of nation building and then kind of uh, the rise and fall of, of people's relations, people's own belief in, in the ANC, the African National Congress and the, the democratic uh, process. You sort of mentioned this already, but I'm just, I, I'm, I'm usually concerned uh, with the possibility that our listeners might not have some of the context of the stuff that we, we discuss here. So could you just tell us briefly, like, what, how and when this idea of the Rainbow Nation comes about? Sure. So uh, the Rainbow Nation was first reference came out of the uh, a series of, of sermons by Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, throughout the 80s, um, where he was traveling around the world and, and within the country at various times. And the Rainbow Nation is the idea that apartheid, which seemed kind of forever lasting, was actually just a storm, a, that, uh, a passing storm. And once, um, once that had passed uh, through the liberation of the country of South Africa, uh, you know, the, the rainbow, of it's, it's a very religious, obviously, uh, a metaphor. Um, the country's rainbow diversity and rainbow people, doesn't to would say rainbow people of God, would come together and coexist in this kind of harmonious space. And, and that was taken up by, um, that was in the 80s, and that was, and it's important to note that uh, some of the most violent um, time of South Africa's uh, apartheid era was in the last few years, right before uh, democracy uh, came, and in the late 80s and early 90s. So there was, uh, particularly between uh, Tulsa um, ethnic group and Zulus, and um, there's a lot of shady things going on behind the scenes with the apartheid government trying, uh, trying to like uh, do some. Uh, dividing politics. So this was also this, this unity and this idea of the rainbow of, of a variety of all sorts of different people, uh, different colors, different, you know, lives coming together to create this, the whole of South Africa was, was very appealing, both from a biblical perspective and also just kind of a conceptually, it, it was very powerful. And Nelson Mandela, uh, when he, um, in his inauguration speech, said that South Africa, we are now a, a rainbow people, a rainbow nation at peace with ourselves and the world. That was kind of the dream vision of what the country could be, right? So even even in its early days, the, this rainbow idea has always been aspirational, right? It's always this dream that, of what, of the country to come that has been, you know, this is not even fully knew this is ongoing uh, since, you know, this is what kept people fighting during during the end struggling to end apartheid was the belief that South Africa could be truly, uh, with the language that was used then, was non-racial, um, which I think backfired a little bit in, in how people think about it, but a multiracial, uh, pluralistic society. So, and then moving on from the Rainbow Nation to the other concept idea that you introduce already in the book's title, tell us a bit about the prism metaphor and how does that make us see or understand differently or even question the rainbow as a symbol and what would be a prismatic performance? Sure. So, um, so a, the prism metaphor kind of works for me in in opposition to this this unified kind of flat uh, diversity rainbow that um, that was projected, uh, which of course creates this idea that the light reflects evenly to, and everybody gets their piece of the, the gold at the end of the at the end of the rainbow. And so a prism I, I just find is conceptually interesting in that it it deconstructs light. So it creates, it can create a rainbow, but it also, um, it also works to show us the pieces that make the whole. It takes white light, which I think is also very interesting, uh, and, and shows all the bits that come from it and how they, and the prism is also as a, as a geode is, and as kind of a, a glass is something that you can look through. And what you see depends, and how you see things depends on where, how you're holding it. And also, uh, I think of if, if performances function as a, as a prism, if 
particularly queer performances function, they uh, they really their meaning shifts and depends upon um, upon how one engages, uh, where one is standing, quite literally, uh, but also um, the context uh, where where one stands shapes one's interaction with both with the idea of queerness. And I I, lo I also got this um, thought about it through the, the lens of the series that this is a part of triangulations, right, uh, which is um, inherently refractive. So, um, for instance, I, I'll give you two quick examples. So, Stephen Cohen, who is a, I write about in my the first chapter is a, uh, a drag, monster drag performer who is trying to critique his whiteness through um, through abjection. And so he, when he's in um, spaces like galleries or he has interventions where he shows up with like a butt plug and, and um, dressed as kind of like ugly, messy drag uh, at like a, um, uh, a fashion show, he's inherently disruptive and he stands for kind of this critique, uh, this outsider critique of specifically because that's a space of, of commerce and in that case whiteness. However, his most, one of his most impactful interventions, uh, he dresses like he wears a chandelier and he walks into a squatter camp into a space that is, that his body is, is disrupting, but also is carries with it the legacy, literal prisons here, reflecting the legacy of whiteness in that context. Uh, and he, and kind of requires him to, uh, and audiences who watch this piece to really think about complicity and think about art and, and the meaning of art in spaces of dire poverty of whiteness in spaces uh, that were then um, happened at that time to be cleared by a, a, an urban renewal force that was trying to build uh, a really pretty new Nelson Mandela bridge. So that's 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 a, a prismatic in that um, it depends on. You can see his work speaking vastly different things about queerness and whiteness and Africanness through that performance. Those performances, uh, depending on his position and his audiences and the interactions between the co-performances, if you will. Um, but in a more uh, in a less artistic sense, I open the and kind of bookend the book with uh, a t discussion of a pride intervention that a black lesbian uh, activist group called the one in nine campaign uh, did uh, staged a die-in at the 2012 Johannesburg pride march and which on the whole of it is very well stage managed and everybody it looks super diverse and floats it looks like it could be pride anywhere right and, and there's lots of pop music and lots of like sports drinks and all those things, uh, but this group of black women cut across the 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 route of the the parade and asked for a moment of silence and um, did kind of a die-in, a la you know think of the work things that you know ACT UP have done, uh, where they lay their bodies down on the road and said we need to acknowledge that black lesbians are vulnerable to violence and sexual assault and disproportionately we need please give us a moment of silence. But the marchers, many of whom were uh, white and the whole pride board was white, and this is where white people make seven or 8% of the population now, only saw black people stopping the parade and they thought they were homophobes, even though these women clearly um, from their signage and also just from their the way they looked uh, were lesbians. And so the marchers started attacking the protesters and running their like floats through the signs and kicking and, and all this kind of real, all this, the racism that had been underlying so much of, of this kind of pretty show of, of community togetherness uh, immediately came out. Uh, people were saying, go back to your locations, which is locations means townships, right? This is not your space. And then later people were like, when they found out that it was actually like a a queer intervention, they said, oh, but they look like homophobes. And so it, it really showed that this this, uh, this automatic alignment in the minds of many, many white queer gay people, that blackness equals homophobes equals, they were just invisible. These black lesbians were invisible as lesbians because they only were seen as, as this kind of uh, signifier of tradition that was seen as, as threatening to the, the pride and the, the script and through that all oh, everything became visible and it was it was ugly and people were fighting and the whole pride kind of conglomeration collapsed 
uh, because of this intervention that if people had just recognized them and seen, you know, it for what it was, could have been a quick minute stop and then everybody continued. But because of the, the misrecognition, the m multiple agendas and the racial politics and the class politics, because the place where it was being held was Zoo Lake Park, which is many people have to take multiple forms of public transportation, many bus taxis to get there, uh, very far away from where the majority of Black South Africans in Johannesburg live. Yeah, all those things came out to the fore. And that that's what where a, a performance, a prismatic performance breaks all of these pat narratives and kind of community uh, idea, the patina of community, it breaks it into its parts. And you see all, all of the different presumptions and affects and attached to an investment in, in, in all these categories. So those of us who investigate the global South, right, have been asking whether or not, and I've, throughout this, this interview series, I've been discussing this with other folks, we've been asking whether or not or how is queer theory a useful framework to apply to some of the places, the people, the experiences that we investigate. And you bring up these debates in this book, so I was wondering how, what do you think about this? How do you deal with it? Can queer theory be applied as it has been in a global Southern context, or should we be devising some theories or methods of our own? And uh, you mentioned here that performance studies can help us. So could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the question, right? And I think for me, it's very much about what is queer theory? What do we consider queer theory. And I think what our parameters are will will change, you know, its relevance. I think that, and I, I talk a little bit about this, I think, in my introduction um, that in the book, that uh, some people have understandably said, you know, you, this is Western theoretical framework. They're, they just do not, are not relevant and are actually potentially colonial, which I would agree with. They can be. Um, but I think there's also a danger of, of saying, you know, queer theory has no place in in our these conversations in the in the global south and and i think that actually what what good theory does um and good what as scholars what we can do is is find where theory exists within our own con within the context where we're writing about and um and theorize from that and intervene and have you know conversations with these kind of more canonical western-based queer theorists and tech to intervene from a global southern perspective, from a localized perspective, and um, and, and complicate those theories that uh, that we might um, see as as being only for the the north. And I think performance studies is really helpful for this because um, queer theory and it. I mean, what does that even mean anymore at this point? But like a lot of it, it's kind of had its earliest. Some of its earliest works were very very esoteric. Um, and are very liter literarily based. And I think what performance studies does is it draws attention and theorizes from and is attentive to the bodies, the bodies in performance, bodies um, in, in relation to one another. And uh, it, is, it can operate across any number of, co of contexts and in, in fact prioritizes those uh, with its with its kind of and of course ethnography can be problematic hashtag, but but it also because of it it has a, a root in um, anthropology and and theorizing from ethnographic lived experience. Um, I think that that can really counter these kind of the, the theory that doesn't feel applicable and and intervene from that located uh, closely observed and and enacted position. Yes. Thanks. Yeah, that that was really helpful. I'm still trying to figure that out myself. Yes, it's, it's an ongoing question, definitely. As you mentioned, right, each chapter focuses on a different facet of queer performance, and you are bringing the concept of performance to some sometimes even unexpected uh, spaces or uh, concepts. But the first chapter is the one that would fit in a more straightforward definition of performance. You talk about the work of two drag artists and their role in their responses to post-apartheid society and politics. But you know that while one of uh, them bases his drag on not scaring the horses with unnecessarily confrontational approaches, 
the other has more of a fuck the horses approach. I love that <laughs> definition. It uh, really brought uh, the point home. So can you talk about the similarities and differences in these performances and what are they doing? Sure. So the, the first performer, the, the one who doesn't want to frighten the horses, and I, I think that's a little reduction, re- reductive, but uh, is Peter Dirk Ace. And he's um, a satirist who has been performing um, during the apartheid since the 80s, um, been performing this character called Evita Bezadenhut, who is very much like, you can think of her of a kind of analogous like Dame Edna Everidge. Um, she is this, the, the wife of a high-ranking apartheid government official, and she becomes a, uh, an ambassador to this in, independent imaginary homeland of and um, basically during the 80s when, when he was being censored, he did a lot of his criticism of the government through the character of Avita. Because people would look and say, oh, it's just that silly drag, as he said, that silly drag queen again. Uh, forget it. And so he was able to, he created this whole mythology. He wrote like her biography. Um, and she, as the one I was mentioning earlier, uh, she, because she was really well known to a number of white audiences, by the time um, the ANC was coming to power, Nelson Mandela, she had an interview, he asked her to do an interview show where she would interview some of the new people who had been, the majority of people ha- who were watching the white audiences would perceive him as terror, as these kind of demonized figures. And so she uh, goes in and, um, and kind of asks the dumb questions that people might be believing. And she models a sort of, a conscientization, although she's still kind of ridiculous and, and silly, she becomes, um, models this way of, a new way of being white, or at least a way of finding space for whiteness in this new, at that time, new rainbow South African identity. And so it, her work is, is very, or Peter Dirk slash Abita Bazaar work is, is very much invested in the nation building project and trying to, to bring people over to the kind of religion of democracy. Um, whereas Stephen Cohen, who was a um, generation younger than Peter Duke, is very much of the, um, the Mr. Fuck the Horses, uh, is, is really interested in, in not recuperating whiteness, but of trying to find ways to disempower and and to reveal the ugliness the of whiteness and to disempower and ab- objectivize is the word but um to kind of stretch the, the ways that white bodies can intervene um with the new south africa and um in ways that are very experimental and um often upset upset the court upset the apple cart and, and okay, one really interesting thing about both of them that, that draws them together uh, is not only they're both white, but they're both Jewish. And um, they kind of reflect the different, the, the complicated relationship that, the, that Jewish people uh, had in South Africa um, because they were considered fully, unlike most other places, not to say there wasn't anti-Semitism, but they were considered to be fully white. And so they were given all the privileges, um, access to everything, uh, very uh, high positions in industry and um, in the mining industries particularly. Uh, so you have this, and then also some of them became leaders, uh, very important uh, resistant leaders. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that they are with these two actors where uh, Ace is using drag in a, in a way to kind of make whiteness absurd and also rethink what that could be and bring people on board um Stephen Cohen is showing that is is dragging literally dragging whiteness into um and and exposing all of its innards and its histories and sometimes um he you know using animal prosthetics and kind of thinking very much how like in a Brechtian sense how whiteness how we understand all of these categories and so essentially I I, I argue that they both in different ways um, present whiteness as a queer form in some ways at its best, at its most either, you know, its, it's most humble or its most abject as, as being a queer form of, of African identity, which is to say um, not central, but part of the rest of this 
this new country that was being formulated and, and understood at that time. But and what I argue, and kind of this propels the most, most the majority of the book, is that uh, yes, they could, they were very effective in, in doing symbolically effective in, in their their transformations and using drag performance as a way to imagine transforming whiteness, but. There was never any sort of real restitution. There was never a reparations or economic change. So it's all good to have, like, you know, superficially um, think about whiteness. But if, if the uh, economic structure remains the same, um, now people are in some ways economically uh, worse off. Uh, the, the Gini coefficient is, is the highest in the world between the rich and the poor. So you can transform all you want. You can drag all you want. But if there isn't ongoing investment in change, then that, that transformation was incomplete. And uh, you can see in the majority of, of the white South Africans still have, uh, have access to power and money. You know, individual acts of, of transformation or um, of reconfiguration cannot uh, make up for a lack of actual uh, material change. And so we move now from these white men in drag to a black lesbian soccer team. This is also another yes. fascinating chapter, but I really, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed reading the whole chapter, but I was really interested in your concept of living as if. Could you talk about that and how are you using it to understand these performances here? So that chapter, I, I basically spent, when I was doing a year of field work in, in 2011, 2010-2011, I spent nine months just hanging out with this soccer team, which might seem like an, uh, an odd kind of space for an activist organization. They came out of a group, the organization Forum for Empowerment of Women. They're called the Chosen Few. But I was really interested in their, their role as, as out public lesbians, specifically in their, in their communities, which were uh, largely the townships, uh, the kind of peri-urban areas around Johannesburg. And how they, because they moved with this soccer team through, um, you know, they would go to, to the gay games, they go to pride, they go to like community organizations. They had, they were constantly in some ways code switching um, and moving, you know, and were always perceived in very particular ways by their otherness. And this requires, you know, being out in these, these um, very sometimes difficult and potentially dangerous circumstances requires, um, required a lot, or I thought as requiring them to take on a lot of like oversized persona and, and kind of live in what I call the, the as if, right? So they live as if their, their constitutional right is protected, is, is respected. And, um, and yet they are also um, kind of existing in this, the space where it's not. So they, by living in this kind of subjunctive way, they do this, what I call projection and protection. It's like a double move where they, they create these, these personas and they like, and they're out in their communities and they are doing activism and um, really, really taking up space in, in very in, incredibly often brave ways. But they do that, but those identities also, those kind of larger than life personas uh, protect them from the fact that, you know, that their, their rights are not, yes, they have the constitutional rights, but their communities may or may not be, uh, be, may or may not accept them or may accept them in ways that only see part of them. So they're, it's, it's a constant negotiation of, of themselves and claiming that space and holding it, uh, and creating and imagining the, the world they, they want to be able to live in and in large ways create, like carving out actual space with as a team but it is yeah, it's always um the world with, i think activism is always in some ways as, not aspirational but um you know you're always trying to it's utopic in a way and what the way that they you can't live in a utopia and i i think this is really for me and this is this is where it's really helpful and where ethnography is really helpful i find to think about yeah, think about intervening into theory because we, there's a lot, like a big whole big thing in, in queer theory and performance theory about utop, you know, queer utopia, Munoz cruising utopia, and it's a great concept. But what I argue is that utopia is is 
never, you can't live in it. You might have glimpse, and that's the beauty of like Munoz's work, which is, I think inspires so many of us, is the idea of queer as this mesh of, of potentiality on the horizon that we never quite arrive at, but it's always there to be strived, striven for. But it's what they do is an intervention, and these the way that not even just this group, but this group kind of gives us an insight into how people live in in the not yet trying buying for the as if and and live live in that that moment of potentiality while still also having you know one foot if not an entire body in in our current world this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Yes. Your third chapter focuses on the popular and artistic representations of this grotesque phenomenon that unfortunately uh, many of us here in the global south are familiar with this idea of, and I'm using huge air quotes here, corrective rape. When you talk about the uh, sexual violence and this paradox of lesbian invisibility, uh, I would like you to ex- uh, talk a bit about this. And also, but how are the performances that you discuss here challenging or resisting this this phenomenon? Right. So... The, the whole kind of, and I want to, I think your air quotes are very important here because uh, there's corrective rape in like capital, all cap, capital letters. And then there's something that has a change.org petition and has become like this, this catchphrase for this particular act, which is, though used elsewhere, it very much is attached to South Africa and the global imaginary. And then the actual lived reality of, of women who, and uh, in this case, we'll just say lesbian women to kind of uh, LGBTQIA plus identified women um, who uh, who are targeted to um, for sexual assault by men in their communities um, with the idea, the kind of excuse that they just need a good man and, and that they're being going to be corrected once they have this assault. But that's just that's of course one isn't possible, but also is isn't isn't in excuse for what is essentially kind of disciplining, right? And in a way, it's, if we think about rape as, a, as an act, it's always about exerting power and control over, over certain bodies that are seen, often those that are seen out, out of moving out of their, their place. And so uh, this, the, the phenomenon known as corrective rape, I think, is it puts uh, Black lesbians specifically um, in a, in a position where they are both hyper visible as like this, um, because it is so grotesque, uh, you know, it, it becomes one of those, those types of like special rape where you hear about it. Um, but it also, so you'll like see it in the newspaper and, and see it, as I said, change.org. Uh, so it's hyper visible, but even as you say it, because you are the, the, the phrase corrective rape, you're taking the, the, position of the perpetrator, but in kind of reiterating it, it's meant to make lesbians invisible. And so it, it really uh, plays with the politics of, of visibility of the gays. Um, and so any depiction or, or discussion about corrective rape, and I think we'd say just violence, sexual violence in general, um, particularly thinking about performance and representation is always, you know, there's always the danger of uh, re- re-traumatizing or of audiences kind of being like, ooh, right? Like, you can't look away because it's so awful. Um, and then reiterating and reifying narratives of like, oh, those, you know, old colonial narratives about black, to kind of riff off Gadri Spivak, black, you know, saving black women, black lesbians from black men, that's white or global, global North people looking at. And so, um, what the artists I look at in this chapter, uh, photographer Zanere Muhori and choreographer and dancer Mamela Nyanza, each really deconstruct this, the, the politics of watching in a way. So um, 
they, uh, for instance, Zanelli Moholi has a, a series of, of images called Only Half the Picture, which are of, they, Zanelli went by she, her, but now goes by they, them, has it come out as uh, non-binary. And um, they were looking at um, taking pictures of black lesbians going about their daily lives, um, but only, only kind of fragmented ways. So violence kind of creeps in and you'll see a scar, but it will be, you'll see someone in their everyday life. And on one hand, that's kind of uh, the hyper invisibility of those things we don't see or the invisible. I don't remember exactly how I did it, it's been a while. But, um, uh, and, and then she also took, they also took um, images of like a portrait series that was very much about, about black lesbians uh, hyper visible and um, staring at the at spectator and kind of returning that gaze. They've also done really interesting works with galleries that are very, very performative and have like, have audio aspects and like into two stages. And they're really expanding what, what we might think of as kind of photography. And then Mamela does this in a uh, collaborated with a black British um, performer, Mojisola um, Adebayo, and uh, in a play about this, dance theater piece called I Stand Corrected, which is about this couple on their wedding day, uh, and one of them is raped and murdered, Mamela's character, and uh, the other is, is basically about Mojisola uh, um, trying to find out what happened to her wife, um, her, her fiance, uh, and it operates in, like, the, the two characters never, never exist in the same time period. One moves forward, the other moves back. But the play begins in this really interesting and excruciatingly painful dance of um, Mamela in a garbage, garbage, essentially like a trash bin garbage can where about five minutes she's kind of enacting the, the, the affects and the, the sounds, the, the movements of an assault, but it's displaced within this, within this object. And she does that in several ways throughout. So. So you are feeling, watching this, you kind of, it's just dread um, as an audience member and, and kind of horror, but you're not actually seeing, it's not being like depicted straight on. So you kind of piece the parts together. And um, in both of these cases, you're, as an audience member, you are made to be aware of your own kind of reckoning with this body that, and that you have, uh, you have expectations of the of this black lesbian, and when you are not fully giving the narrative you expect, or or when it is displaced on objects, you you realize your own position uh, positionality in relation to that figure, and you're kind of you look at your own process of watching, and your own desires to see that you've been projecting and thinking and realize the kind of violence of of the gaze, uh, particularly when it is. Reflect when what you want to see is is denied you. You have to reflect on on your own relationship. Uh, after I read that chapter, I started looking up these performances, and they're really fascinating. Yeah, and then your final chapter is a virtual ethnography of the online response to a gay storyline on a popular soap opera. I'm Brazilian, so I was already you know already excited about this chapter. But I, I found the discussion of virtual fandoms really inspiring because I'm also trying to look at a similar phenomenon. And you, as we, we talked, right, you're bringing the idea of performance to some unexpected spaces. Here you engage specifically with the audience. And as you say here, the triangulated relationship between audience effect and social change. So I'd like you to tell us what do you mean by performative spectatorship? Sure. So first, to give a little bit of background. Um, over the course of my, my many years of, of field work, uh, visiting one full year and then several months every other year, there's a show Generations, which I mentioned, that started in 1994 and ended in 2014, which we didn't know, but when I was doing this. But there was this, one of the most visible like uh, representations of gay characters in the public sphere was on the soap opera. But I couldn't find it. I knew that like the world, like part of my French, the world like lost their shit when they saw this. Uh, like everybody, the 
to something every family watches, very much like telenovelas and, and other in other contexts. Every night for like the story never ends and they watch for decades. And I couldn't find any any anything to hold on to. And the soap opera itself, the storyline wasn't really that interesting. And the they were gonna charge me fifty dollars per episode of the stinky soap opera uh, when I talked to the South African Broadcasting Corporation. And I was I was frustrated. But then I found this website called Jen's Blog, G E N S B L O G. Uh, which was a fan site and you would have, it was just the most amazing thing. It was people who would have for years would log on mostly uh, South African uh, kind of the black middle class who were working at various offices, but not just South Africa because the stuff, the soap opera broadcast uh, across the continent. So uh, you'd have people in Nigeria and all these different people logging in to talk about the soap opera, but it wasn't like a, just like, leave your message on the message board and then go away. People used it like a chat site. And so there was this archive of like hundreds of thousands of comments about these people who just talked all day. And they were using this virtual space as a way to first talk about the soap opera they loved, but also they, they started taking building relationships with each other and creating their own kind of family dynamic. And they, they called themselves the blog family. And you could see um, like people would, be taking on the kind of melodrama of the soap opera and they'd create characters that were, were uh, a way to engage with their love of, of this, this melodramatic genre and this television show, but also in a way that built community and allowed them to kind of uh, imagine themselves as part of this family, which mirrors um, and which would become a support system for people uh, who felt very isolated. So it was very much kind of this post-apartheid um, phenomenon of people moving to big cities to, uh, you know, to make it good, to make it rich, very soap opera-y, and then feeling isolated and renting rooms and, and not having the family connection so, uh, that they would have when they were at home. And so they, this online space became a familial space in a way over the course of years. And suddenly, um, so that's kind of how it, just to think about like passion, uh, fandom as, um, where the audience becomes the performer and they perform for each other um, and with the shared kind of script of this, of the soap opera and the, and its trope, um, which they love. So I got really into just like, like digging into this and, and discovering these own people with their soap opera lives um, or the, how they dramatize themselves. But this was also a great site to see um, the reaction people had to this, this kiss on a, on the, on the soap opera, where the beginning of the gay storyline, uh, where it radically shattered this kind of, this community that had, by that point, had its norms, had its rituals, and different people were just like having, suddenly the rhetoric changed, and people were like talking about fire and brimstone, and then other people were saying, well, you know, this is just how life is, and it became this this, this community in, in a crisis, essentially, where people, I think one of the, the people said, you know, I think we're falling apart. And for me, it was a really, really unique example of an opportunity to think about reception um, in a kind of three-dimensional sense, as not just someone watches and, has, and not just passive, but uh, as audience reception as being an active, shifting, collective thing. And so, yeah, it was... Um, and watching, it also allowed you to see by tracing these same people over this, this website and their relationships. And they, you could see how they're, how they made space for this intersecting identity of, of Afri South Africanness or Africanness and, you know, homosexuality. And there's this truism that I talk, I reference throughout my book, um, or it's kind of an, it's just, it's an ex widely accepted belief that uh, homosexuality is un-African. It's a phrase that gets repeated, 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 or, or not part of our African culture, um, as if that is one thing. And so I look at that. But what it does in this space is they, they have to make, they have to create a space where these, these seemingly oppositional or previously oppositional categories can coexist. And that is because they, because of the, the genre itself, and the show that has been running since 1994, and they've been watching it probably the majority of their lives. They, these characters are real for them, and they are projecting themselves onto the characters and into this kind of super cosmopolitan Johannesburg, but also they projected themselves into this other community, this parallel online community, where they are 
have built really meaningful relationships. And so I, I get really into the prism metaphor here about like uh, refraction and uh, reflection, refraction and defraction, which is uh, kind of comes out of feminist science studies where there is a, there is for some, re some reason a blockage of, of the light, right? The metaphorical prism um, and the light and the beam is, has to reform itself around the blockage. And so essentially, I think that's a helpful way of thinking about how change happens when something is so disruptive that you, it could not, cannot go on as it did before. The, the room, the chat room, but also these, these individuals had to make space unless they were going to give up the show they've been watching their whole life. And some people did. Some people never came back. But a lot of people did. And a lot of people made space to find acceptable, you know, whether it was feminizing the gay man. So it, you know, it's not like, it's not like suddenly everybody became the great allies and like super pro-gay. But then you also had gay people coming to the website for the first time. And like, and there's a really interesting relationship between these two posters, T-Boz and ZZ, where ZZ is, T-Boz is kind of goes from like seeing himself as like the big, as being very proud of his homophobia. And he's kind of like the big man of the chat room because mostly it's, it's women, um, but he he really begins to at least res ex uh, express respect for ZZ, asking them questions, and this poor guy, ZZ, whoever, who says he worked at the SIBC as a, a kind of in, in a lower level, and they he really, they get to know each other as people, and he you can see him coming, see boss coming around to that, uh, and then ZZ eventually leaves, because I imagine that's not a fun thing to have to go and feel like you're trying to constantly explain or justify your existence. But it, it, it's like that just where like, we so rarely get to see change. We always, we talk about, you know, oh, audience, you know, the audience feels this or the audience, you know, and it's incredibly hard to, to really track how people's perceptions change over time, especially with performance. And that's why I think this is a helpful lens. And so this was an archive where you could see change, shifting attitudes and particularly you could see people creating spaces for queerness in their ideas of African culture. And also, uh, and I think because of the melodrama and the affect and the projection of themselves so intensely into the soap opera and also reenacting it and creating their own soap opera in a virtual space, they were able to, to shift. Opinions shifted. Now, what that means in the long term, who knows? But this was such an interesting site, and it would, I, can't, I would never have discovered it if they had just, like, the SABC had just made those episodes available to me. I was, might have done something completely different. But it gave me a way to, to tap into what I knew, as, as in, for those who are, you know, researchers, you know, we, sometimes there are things you, you, you know have happened. Like, this was really incredibly important to how people perceived gay couples, a nightly show where it was normalized and where you saw the struggle, the homophobia of the father, right? It's, it's all about familial drama and dynamic. The father attacks the son, the son's boyfriend, and then everybody, he becomes an alcoholic, but then he comes around eventually. Uh, and everybody by that point, everybody who was like, yeah, I would have beaten him too, are like, come on, man, just, just forgive him. Let's bring peace to the family, right? And so we can move on to another storyline about Katiwe shooting her baby, whatever the ridiculous soap opera spots are. And it, it, it was just a, a lovely, unexpected discovery during the research that um, that's one of my favorite parts of, of the whole project was just really, really diving deep into this space and seeing how people performed for each other in this prismatic space where, where multiple types of projection and engagement, uh, even if it's disembodied, in some ways that makes it easier, where these things were really, really shifting and where attitudes were changing. Yeah, that's a fascinating chapter and an incredible use of netnography. I I caught myself really invested in the plot lines that were developing in the board, like less so than the ones in the actual soap opera. Uh, and uh, there's so much more uh, that I would love to talk to ask you about, but I think we're uh, running out of time. But before you go, could you share with us what you're working on next? Sure. Uh, let's see. So I've been really, really interested, and this is just the beginning of a, a project. I unfortunately have been trying, having trouble, you know, pandemic, and then carving out time. But what, one of the most 
interesting and exciting things that has happened in South Africa in recent in the past five years, I would say, is this student movement that uh, began with a statue of Cecil Rhodes on the University of Cape Town's campus, and a black student who felt who was just angry and frustrated took poop and excrement and threw it at the statue and then documented it, put it on social media. And it created a movement around removing the statue, right? Which is, I think, something that's happening across the world right now, this idea that, that these symbols must go. But it, one of the really most interesting things about this movement to remove roads, which was called Roads Must Fall initially, and then it took off across the country, so then it became Fees Must Fall. The most interesting about this thing about this movement was it was young and explicitly feminist. Many of the leaders were queer, um, and it was it was a decolonial movement that that differed in some ways from a lot of the other, you know, colonial, decolonial, or anti-colonial movements of earlier times um, in in South Africa and elsewhere in the continent and perhaps the world, where they often, you know, it's it's about Fanon, it's about you know these these great men, uh, but this particular iteration was very much led by women and trans people who uh, were leaders and also um, artists and it really inter- had interventions with the statue and it was just it was very different because you know as prismatic performances says I um, the the gay movement with a you know capital oh, capital G mostly um, has largely been about been led by white people, um, even though they are a tiny fraction of the population, because they are the ones with money and they are, you know, they can access these like neighborhood spaces and live that life. But this is very much lo- linking sexual diversity, uh, queerness to a radical root from the bottom up movement of what it what it means to decolonize the university, but also knowledge and the country. South Africa never, I mean, the, these, these youth largely think that it was a, um, that transition to democracy was a horrible, comp- not a horrible, but it was a compromise and that Nelson Mandela was a sellout. And these are all people who were born this century and have a, a lot of like, and are online constantly. And so the whole thing was broadcast and they are also in dialogue with Black Lives Matter and other, other similar organizations elsewhere and I just I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with this yet and I you know you have to write like grant applications and things and so I I, I always sound like I have a really great sense on what I'm going to do but I'm I'm just really interested in, in what how this pushes how we understand the relationship between queerness and decoloniality and uh, social movement and also social media and there's also a play that uh, just a little my little theater bit here uh, there's a play called The Fall that's basically a docudrama that's been incredibly successful, traveled the world, created by a group of students who were there at the protest, and they are, they've, tra- they've translated the whole thing into uh, this theater piece that's really incredibly powerful. And just, just thinking about what, what does it mean for this, for an event to circulate and online and also embodied and re- re-performed in different ways, in different locations, and how does that the locations they travel to, you know, and how did those audiences interact with it? And so they were in DC and I saw them perform a couple times and they, you know, when, when we, it was in the fallout after the Charlottesville um, protests around, uh, around the statues. And just, I just think there's so much interesting kind of synergy globally, but specifically centering this as a case study of all these complicated, exciting new ways to imagine queerness and decoloniality. It, it is an incredible movement and phenomenon, and I can't wait to see what you're going to do with it, what you're going to write. And I hope that if you, you have, have another book out, you'll come see us and talk oh, to yeah, us here. Be my first, first port of call. Thank you. No, it's, as I was saying, it's just been so wonderful to, to be in conversation again, my, uh, after such a, so much distance and, and difficulty. I just, I'm really glad that, that uh, outlets like this exist and I really appreciate your your engagement with the work and and making this happen and i'm really thankful for for your your time today and for talking to me as as we were discussing and as i've mentioned in a previous interview i'm a historian so i 
I count on the brilliant work of performance scholars to help me understand my own work. So thank you. And we, we really count on the, on the brilliant historiography that gets done. I, I think that's something I would love to learn more about. So you'll have to let me know when your book comes out. I will, and we'll definitely keep in touch. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. And I just spoke with Dr. April Sizemore-Barber about prismatic performances, queer South Africa and the fragmentation of the Rainbow Nation, which was published by the University of Michigan Press in 2020. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time.